Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Welcome to the Commonwealth Club. I'm George Hammond, Chair of the Humanities Forum, which organized tonight's event. I'd like to welcome our live audience here in San Francisco and our radio and online audiences. You can always visit the Commonwealth Club at www.commonwealthclub.org to listen to podcasts of almost all the lectures that we give here. And tonight, it's my great pleasure to introduce Nadina Laspina. Um, who has come here after a very long journey uh, uh, to talk about her book, Such a Pretty Girl, and uh, her birth, her issues, and her life. And she's a disability activist, and she has a great uh, story to tell and a great insight to tell as well about, about the life that she lived and how other people can get a better angle on this whole issue that we're trying to uh, do something better about in our society. So, Nadina, thank you so much for coming. Thank you. Well, thank you, everyone, for for being here. Um, I'm going to start from the very beginning. Uh, the first chapter is titled Riposto. Riposto is the town where I was born, in Sicily. When I was four or five, I wanted to be ugly and got very angry when people said I was pretty. I'm ugly, Bruta, say that I'm ugly. But no one listened to me. Que bella bambina. What a pretty little girl, they all said. And inevitably, they added, Que peccato. What a shame. There was such sorrow in their voices. Such an anguished look on their faces. I didn't want my being pretty to make people sad. Better to be ugly, I thought. I especially didn't want my being pretty to make my mother sad. As soon as she heard those words, even if she had been laughing a minute before, my mother's eyes filled with tears, and her face turned into a mask of agony. At those times, my mother looked just like the addolorata. The addolorata, the sorrowful woman, was the name of a statue in the church across the street from where we lived in the little town of Riposto in Sicily. It was a statue of Mary holding the dead Christ, a Sicilian version of Michelangelo's Pieta. The mother, dressed in gold-embroidered purple silk, grief carved deeply into her painted face. On her lap, her dead son, red-stained slender limbs draped in lifeless abandonment. People seemed as mournful when they looked at my mother holding me, as they were when looking at the Adolorata holding her dead son. Sometimes I thought my mother and the Adolorata were one and the same. They even had the same name, Maria. I have early memories of being on my mother's lap as she sat outside with the town women while my father was at work. 
we sat in the afternoon sun in the winter months, and in the summer we sat in the shade. My mother told the women the story of when I was born. The midwife, Mamana in Sicilian, was impressed that such a slight woman as my mother could give birth to such a big baby as me. She left my mother bleeding on the bed with my grandmother tending to her for a few minutes and rushed with me in her arms to the bakery around the corner to weigh me on the bread scale, not even washed yet, crying loudly because my lungs were so vigorous, wrapped only in a sheet because it was very warm on the afternoon of, of May 16, 1948. Over four kilos I weighed, almost nine pounds. And I was growing so healthy and strong, my mother told the women, already talking at 16 months and walking on my own. And I was never sick, never a fever until, until that fateful night when crudele poliomelite, cruel poliomelitis invaded our happy home and stole me from my family. I imagined Crudele Poliomelite as an ugly monster with a weird name who actually appeared out of the darkness to grab me and steal me away. Those are my first memories, you know, of this town, this very oppressive religious atmosphere and and feeling so uh, different from everyone else. From, from all the other kids. Um, and you see my mother um, trying to, bl- to, sh- to push the blame away from, from herself. Um, that was the main purpose of a woman, you know, to be married and, and, and give birth. And, and she wanted everybody to know that she gave birth to a healthy baby. Um, my father's name was Giovanni. He was always at work. He built houses. That was his mestiere, his trade. He was a master builder. Mashu. Young men worked for him and he taught them how to mix cement and build walls with bricks. Even when he was home, my father worked fixing anything that needed fixing, covering up cracks with plaster, changing the color of the walls to make our house more beautiful. I adored my father. To me, he was the smartest, the strongest, most handsome man in the world. I loved it when my father picked me up and carried me in his work clothes, all smeared with cement. My mother complained about my getting dirty, but I liked it. And as my father held me, I felt the muscles in his chest and arms, muscles as hard as his heart is soft, my mother said. I liked the way my father smelled of cement, sweat, and cigarette smoke. 
I wrapped my arms tightly around his neck and clung to him. My father kissed me and called me Joya, Joy. Sometimes my father carried me on his shoulders. I laughed and grabbed onto his head to keep my balance. I'm falling, Papa! My father laughed too and his strong arms raised, wrapped his hands around my waist. His hands were so big, they almost entirely encircled me. Non aver paura, gioia, don't be afraid. But I wasn't afraid. I felt I was on top of the world. He moved his shoulders up and down in a rhythmic motion, mimicking the galloping of a horse. Where does my princess want to go? Your wish is my command. I laughed and laughed. My mother used to carry me across the street. There was a, a convent. Um, the nuns had a, an elementary school and she would, um, hand me, carry me and then hand me over to the nuns who carried me from, um, to the classroom and sat me in the chair. That's, that's how it was. Um, and, um, and the nuns sometimes, uh, they would hug me and and start kissing me and saying <laughs> so that was the refrain that was the refrain in my in my childhood that's what I kept hearing and one day one of the nuns um The nuns did their best to instill in me a sense of guilt and shame and to teach me to embrace my own destiny of suffering. Offer, offer your suffering to the Lord. They always said to me, I could not understand what would the Lord possibly want to do with my suffering. One day when Sister Angelica started her offer your suffering routine, I rebelled. But I want to be happy. I got, she started stroking me and kissing me. Oh, my poor darling, how could you be happy? Pieta, you can never be happy. I got furious. I can so be happy, I yelled, hitting the nun's chest with my small fists as I struggled to free myself from her ominous embrace. That's what I was taught, that my life was going to be an unhappy life. Uh, I grew up with this. This is what they told me. Uh, my future was... What future, you know? Um, uh, I didn't know what my future was going to be. In Riposto, every girl learned at an early age what a woman's destiny, that's what they called it, not future, but destiny, uh, was to get, it was to get married and have children. Unless, of course, she was too ugly to find a man who would marry her. Then she could become a nun or horror of horrors end up at Zitella, an old maid. At an early age, I learned that getting married and having children was not my destiny. 
The message came across quite clear, though never loud. It came in hushed tones and sighs. Since I was not like other girls, I couldn't grow up to be like other women. I mentioned my father before. Um, my father had been taking me to doctors and hospitals since I was quite small. We had been to Catania, Messina, Rome, and Bologna. Rome and Bologna were far. It took many hours for the train to get there, crossing the strait on a ferry and going through many dark tunnels. Doctors scared me because they always hurt me. One doctor in Messina gave me shock treatments to regenerate the nerves on my spine. The shocks went through my body like a thousand snakes on fire, burning and biting me inside, making me shake all over and pee on the treatment table. I was already big enough to feel embarrassed about peeing. After we got home for weeks, my mother squeezed aloe leaves on the blisters that formed on my back. Actually, that was nothing compared to what I had to go through when I got to the U.S. So my father, uh, my father's uh, dream was to bring me to America. America! Uh, my father worked hard, saved money so he could take me to the best hospitals, the best doctors. But every time we went to a new doctor, his hope was renewed only to turn into disappointment afterward. Italian doctors are too ignorant, he told me when we came home from yet another trip to Rome. They don't do research, they'll never find a cure. Then my father smiled, this big, bright smile, to show me he was not defeated. A new plan had been germinating in his mind. We we would leave this town, this country, where injustice and ignorance ruled, and we would go to America. In America, guarisci. You'll be cured, my father promised. In America, cammini. You'll walk. I always believed everything my father said. I wasn't sure how far America was or how we'd get there. But if that's where my father wanted to take me, that's where I'd go. Being in this town, the um, the religious atmosphere, uh, the pity doled on me, you know. And my father wanted me to be cured and no future unless I could get cured. That's what I, that's how I felt. My father wanted me to be cured because he loved me, of course. Um, but, uh, but what I heard was that I was no good the way I was. Um, that I needed fixing. That, um, unless I could be cured, I had no life to look forward to. Um, and uh, I, I had no idea what this destiny... Destiny was a word they loved to use in Sicily. Uh, <laughs> destiny. Everybody had their destiny. This was a woman's destiny, and this was a... Um, well, my father succeeded, obviously, because here I am, right? <laughs> uh, he, took, he brought me to America, and... Um, 
And as soon as I came, I was, um, uh, I, I went into the, to, into a hospital, it was the hospital for special surgery, uh, in New York, uh, you know it. Within a month of, uh, my, uh, arriving in the U.S., uh, I was admitted at the hospital for special surgery. This is, uh, I'm getting admitted and my parents are there and the nurse comes uh, with uh, a wheelchair. I had never seen a wheelchair before. I've never used the wheelchair before, never even seen one, but she starts pushing me. But the feeling of moving on wheels was a familiar one. My mother had pushed me in my baby carriage when I started middle school. My father had bought me a bicycle with training wheels. Um, I wasn't sure whether it was hard to get wheelchairs in Sicily or whether my father didn't want to see me in one. He never wanted to see me in one. He looked unhappy as he watched me get into the wheelchair. He rushed over and kissed me on the head. Don't be afraid of the chair. It's only until they cure you. I wasn't afraid. As the nurse pushed me, I savored every second of the smooth ride. My parents had to walk fast to keep up with us. I couldn't keep my hands from moving down toward the push rims, knowing instinctively what they were for. The nurse must have guessed that I was itching to push myself because somewhere in the middle of a long corridor, she let go of the push handles and pointed straight ahead. Go, she said, and I knew exactly what she meant, and I knew exactly what to do. Without hesitation, I took off, arms pumping, wheels turning, go. For the first time in my life, I was moving on my own, no one carrying me, no one pushing me. I could go straight ahead or curve to the right or to the left. I could go full speed speed or slow down to let my parents catch up, stop and turn around to see how far I got, then go again. That day in that long corridor in that American hospital, I fell in love with the wheelchair. It was a heavy, ugly hospital wheelchair, shiny chrome and green vinyl, but I loved it. Arms pumping, wheels turning, go on my own, go on my way, on my way to start my new life in America. I still love the wheelchair. Whenever people ask, uh, "When are you gonna get, why, when are you gonna get out of that wheelchair?" I say, "Oh, I hope uh, not for a very long time. I'm not planning to, to die anytime soon." <laughs> I love it. <laughs> um, they put me. I was 13 years old. They put me they were on the floor with. Um, there was. Children on one side and teenagers on the other side. I was 13, right in the middle, so I went with the teenagers. 
and I felt so grown up. I made friends right away. I was ecstatic in Sicily. I thought I was the only crippled girl in the world. And here I found myself surrounded by so many disabled girls and boys. The first English words I learned were the names of their different disabilities. Some of the names were difficult for me to pronounce. Ah, cerebral palsy, muscular dystrophy, spinal muscular atrophy. I was glad when I found out I could use acronyms. CP, MD, SMA. The names of other disabilities sounded Italian and were easier to pronounce and to remember. Dystonia, spina bifida, osteogenesis imperfecta. I don't know. I don't understand how you can say osteogenesis imperfecta and not cerebral palsy, complained one of my new friends, Jane, personally offended, uh, since her disability was cerebral palsy. To make up for the offense, I told her how easy it was for me to understand her. Because of her CP, her speech was wonderfully slurred, so I grasped a lot of what she said while I couldn't understand the other kids who spoke too fast. (laughs) I was glad that in English my disability was called the same as it was in Italian. Polio. I didn't know what I would have done if I had one of those hard-to-pronounce disabilities. I figured polio was the best disability for me. (laughs) So I found in the hospital the joy, you know, I, I first experienced the joy of finding community. And I made friends, uh, I, I made one, one friend became my very best friend. Those of you who read the book, uh, if there's a, a, a particular, um, part that you would like me to read, um, you can you can ask me and um, um, uh, how many have already read the book? Great. Maybe I'll read this silly little part about the American doctors. The American doctors, maybe a dozen of them, came to our floor in the morning and checked each one of us, but talked only to one another. They bent and stretched our legs and checked the incisions on those who had just had surgery but said nothing to us. Their visit was called rounds. Get ready, the doctors are making rounds, the nurses yelled after the doctors left our room. I asked Rosa. Rosa was uh, my first roommate and, uh, and she was, um, uh, Italian-American. Her, uh, grandmother had taught her some Sicilian. So I, that the social worker thought it was a good idea to put me in the room with uh, Rosa. And what did they say? I would ask Rosa. I don't know what they said about you. I don't know what they said about me either. I don't understand them. But you know English, Rosa. Oh, they're not speaking English, believe me. They're talking medical mumbo-jumbo. I want it 
the American doctors to acknowledge me, to notice how grown up I was, how quickly I was learning English. I wanted to get their attention by saying something intelligent to them. What can I say to the doctors? I asked Rosa. You can say fuck you. <laughs> What does that mean? It's like saying piacere. Piacere is what Italians say when they meet each other, meaning pleased. It seemed the appropriate thing to say to the American doctors. And the word was easy enough for me to pronounce. So the next morning when they all stood around my bed, I gave the American doctors my biggest smile. And careful to pronounce it correctly, I said, fuck you. <laughs> One of the older, more important looking doctors was talking and he stopped in mid-sentence. The look of shock on his face was not what I had expected. All the doctors seemed shocked though the younger ones also seemed amused. One in particular was trying hard not to laugh. I knew Rosa had tricked me. I wondered what I had said. I looked toward her, but her head was under the blanket. <laughs> I wanted to pull the covers over my head too, but then the important-looking doctor just started talking again, and all the others turned to listen to To him, they talked to one another a while longer, as if I weren't there, then walked out of the room. The kids in the hospital used to make fun of me because I mispronounced words. So I expected everyone to laugh and make fun of me mercilessly. Instead, the kids treated me as if I were a hero. You said fuck you to the doctors? Wow, I wish I had the guts to do that. It didn't matter to them that I hadn't known what I was saying. Um, the girl that I, uh, that I met, um, she became my best friend. She, we, 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 kept hearing, uh, even uh, in, in this uh, new country, we kept hearing the same messages that uh, if, um, if we were disabled, our lives would not um, be happy. And she very sadly um, believed those lies. And uh, sh she committed suicide. And I was um, very... Um, I went through a very um, deep depression so that when I started hearing about um, and I it, it was it was kind of I, I needed a lifeline and I um, started calling um, disabled friends and and I started hearing about meetings and uh, demonstrations Judy Human uh, had sued the Board of Education and started Disabled in Action at the time. And I, um, I, I, I remember, you know, going, starting to go, go to meetings and not really saying a word because I was still in, in such a, you know, sad state. But a little 
But at a time, I um, started seeing things differently. It was amazing to discover how similar we would talk, you know. When and and I did mostly, I listened. Then you remember? Do you remember? <laughs> <laughs> I, did, I was not. Then I became a, you know, I couldn't. They couldn't shut me up. But then I, I, I listened mostly. It was amazing to discover how similar our experiences were. Once we started comparing notes, it was amazing to discover how similar our experiences were. Once we started comparing notes. Until then, we had all considered our disabilities to be the problem. We believed we were supposed to cope as best we could. As we talked, we realized the disability itself was not that big a deal for us. We had all learned to accept our physical limitations. What made life difficult was not the disability, but the lack of services and support, the lack of accessibility, the unfair and stereotypical ways in which we were treated, the pity doled out for us all our lives. Often, after a meeting, I wrote my thoughts down in a notebook. It's not my fault that I'm disabled. Yet, I've been made to feel that it is, I wrote. My polio never made me unhappy. People made me unhappy. Ever since I was a little girl, people have always made me feel I was no good because I was disabled. From the Sicilian women and the nuns, to the doctors who couldn't fix me, to my fellow students and prospective employers, and even my own parents. As I wrote, my tears fell and stained the pages, tears of anger, of relief, and of new hope. And I go to my very first demonstration, and I made a sign. The demonstration, the first one I went to, was at the DMV to get special parking permits because I had started, I was driving. I learned to drive, and I uh, was driving when I was in college. And uh, I made the sign. I was very proud of my sign. Some had made fancy ones using boards and markers of various colors, drawing pictures of cars. Mine was simple, black letters in black magic marker on a white board. It read, if you think we're helpless, we got news for you, man. <laughs> You remember, man? <laughs> we can fight for our rights just as well as you can. That was my first sign. You are listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher. Learn about our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live for any of our 500 programs each year. You can find us online at CommonwealthClub.org. Now back to our program. Um, I was um, thunderstruck. By the realization that as a disabled person, I had rights. 
had been hearing and talking and getting excited about rights, and never before had it dawned on me that the same arguments could apply to me, to us, disabled people. There were rights for black people, rights for women, rights for Native Americans, for immigrants, for workers, for gays. There were even animal rights, but I'd never before heard anybody talking about rights for disabled people. They talked about benefits and cures and charity for us, not rights. I got so fired up at the mere notion of disabled people fighting instead of asking pretty please, instead of begging and sitting around wishing and hoping and praying to be cured. The message that we weren't helpless, as everyone seemed to believe and as everyone wanted us to believe, was one that I wanted to shout to the four corners of the earth. The best I could do for the time being was to print it in big black letters on a white board. By the way, I started hearing about the civil rights movement and uh, Martin Luther King when I was in this um, convalescent home, they called it, uh, for children and teenagers. It was called Blythdale. And I was going to read a, a little bit from that. Uh, yes, I'll, I'll go to that. The following year, 1968, was traumatic for the whole country. We lived through two assassinations. On April 4th in Memphis, Dr. King was shot. I heard the news on my car radio on Grand Central Parkway on my way home from St. John's University. Unable to go on driving, I pulled off the road and cried until a police car stopped and a young black officer knocked on my window. Every time I'd hear the police called pigs, in the future, I would remember this young officer's hand on mine and the kindness in his voice. Two months later, on June 5th, Bobby Kennedy was killed. He had just won the California Democratic primary, giving his young supporters renewed hope that he might become our next president. That year also saw the escalation of the Vietnam War, and the Malai massacre. And we watched the police acting as true enemies, attacking demonstrators outside the Chicago Democratic Convention with truncheons, maize, and tear gas. Audrey and I now sported, Audrey is my best friend, long patchwork skirts, which conveniently hit our legs. We discarded our bras, which at age 13 we'd been proud to wear. <laughs> Around our necks, we piled love beads and silver chains with peace symbols. When Audrey came over, I get in her car. Instead of driving around aimlessly, we headed for Greenwich Village. It was the Mecca, the place where being different was valued, not scorned. Among the hippies, we almost felt like we belonged. We hung out in Washington Square Park, joined in, in a protest if one was going on, listened to the folk singers who congregated there, bought a nickel bag of grass. <laughs> a nickel wasn't good enough then. 
a nickel bag you went a long way then. <laughs> to remember. Um, I was the more political one, more vehement in my opposition to the war. I quoted Dr. King, whose picture I had on the wall above my desk. Audrey could sing just like Janis Joplin. I always wanted to go to the demonstration. She wanted to go to rock concerts. I think I'll stop there because it's, uh, and that's that. Then we go to to the demonstration in Washington, but I think I'm I'm gonna skip ahead because I want I want to I want some questions. I want you to ask some questions. I don't know exactly how much time we have here. Ten minutes? Yeah. So. Um, I thought I would, um, so I can read a little bit more, and then we'll go to the questions. Okay. Danny and I met at the Empire State Building. It was the first uh, demonstration, the, the first uh, lawsuit in the country against the public accommodation, and it was January 27 of 92, because uh, that's when uh, the, the title of the ADA went into effect, and we filed the first lawsuit. And after that, Danny started uh, coming to demonstrations and to more demonstrations. And to um, Danny had um, primary progressive multiple sclerosis. And for a long time, we really credited the DMS for bringing us together. We, we he would say, "I'm so happy to have MS because otherwise I never would have met you, <laughs> and we never would have had this life." Um, but how we got to then? You know, we okay. We it was for, it was love at first sight. That's what he always said, but um, um, what they what uh, what they did is they um, uh, what what our community did is they um, nominated us uh, to organize to, to be the main organizers of this uh, very big event in New York City, which was the ninety three Disability Independence Day March. We see it as the first Pride March. And so we would have meetings and uh, he would get, um, uh, he would say, I can't get close enough to you. Let me, let me see what you're writing. (laughs) And uh, sometimes following a a meeting, let me see if I find my place here, uh, have a meeting and then I would follow him into some uh, dark room. Uh, I wheeled out of the room right behind Danny. The the crowd moved at a snail's pace toward the elevator. Suddenly, Danny broke away from the others and headed toward an an open door. Without thinking, I followed him into a dark room. Our wheelchairs nearly collided as we gravitated toward each other. I couldn't see him, but I felt the spasming arms closing around me. Surprisingly strong, I was locked inside those arms when our mouths found each other's. Transported by passion, I lost my awareness of time and space. I think I think I should let you read the book and find those the, the steamier, the steamier parts. Um, uh, sometimes following a meeting, we'd get into some heavy petting right on a busy sidewalk. We're doing it to educate those who think Crips are asexual. I said, I said to friends and other fr- and others who, 
who loved to tease us, of course. Indeed, it was quite amusing to see the looks of patronizing benevolence on people's faces turn to shocked horror when confronted with the unabashed expression of our lust. <laughs> there are some people in front that have read the book and maybe you can start uh, asking me questions. Uh, I don't know. Anne, you want to start asking? Right. I'd like to remind our radio and online audiences that are listening to Nadina Lespina speaking about her book, Such a Pretty Girl, uh, Disability Rights Activist. I don't know if this is a question or a comment, but Maybe you can amplify on it. Um, I was so struck by what you said about the kind of psychological damage that's done to disabled children by that constant message of you are not okay the way you are. And even things that we think of as maybe not being damaging, like physical therapy, which, you know, which is not to say people shouldn't have physical therapy, but I think I as a child, and I think you had a similar experience, had such a strong sense of you're not okay the way you are. You need to keep trying. You need to keep trying harder to be different than you are. Do you want to talk about that a little bit more or amplify it at all? I, I was tortured, literally. I mean, um, and, and for me, I mean, there was this, uh, um, the fact that my father made all these sacrifices to bring me to the U.S. Um, and, uh, and I, and I felt I, uh, I had to walk for him and that I was, yes. And, and, and no matter what I did, um, there's a scene in, I have a little scene in the book where I finally, I'm finally walking with braces and crutches and, um, and I wait for my parents to come because they would come at night to, to, to uh, they worked all day. To, to visit and uh, and I finally walking with braces and crutches very very carefully you know crutch right crutch left foot right foot <laughs> and uh, and my parents are coming and I and and my father says oh yes and my mother is smiling and my father says I bet pretty soon you're gonna get rid of those ticks too isn't this enough? How much do you want from me? Uh, parents, uh, doctors, medical professionals, society don't understand the harm that's done. Um, making you feel that you're not okay the way you are. And it doesn't matter what the disability is, really. You know, I mean, for, for, those of us with physical disabilities, it was, you know, surgery after surgery. I had so many surgeries, um, and physical therapy. Uh, and yes, some of the surgeries, uh, did help. Uh, um, I, I don't think, uh, that much. Um, but, um, um, no matter, it's, it's a, Terrible message when a child uh, uh, is told that, uh, um, made to feel that the way you are is not okay. 
that something is wrong, that you're not who you are is not okay, not just what the way you are, but who you are is not good, is not okay. That's a terrible, terrible message. It took me a long time to to um, get over that. I mean, it it uh, uh, especially with my. Father, I, I I always felt I disappointed my father by not getting cured. That um, that that I um, he, he was uh, uh, I failed him in a way. You know, I see hands going up. Yeah, the, is there anyone else who read the book that was? Yes, let I, I wanted to have the one the people who read the book were sitting in front, and uh, go ahead, Eddie. Okay, um, so you've been a, you're an experienced, uh, activist in disability community for quite a long time. Uh, uh, I'm old, yes. Yeah, well. <laughs> and so have, in, in that period of time, have you, do you think the disability activism is more, uh, more, it ties in more with other kind of movements, or is do you still see elements of its uh, our movement first, our community first? Absolutely not. I think it ties in, uh, and how? I think it's all one struggle. Uh, there are many people um, uh, who are um, seen as not good enough, who are seen as. Um, um, dispensable, who are seen, who are not wanted. Um, uh, I mean, my, uh, well, I was arrested twice recently and one of the arrests was in front of ICE. Um, because I, uh, I believe it is, I believe we are all in one struggle. Um, we are those who are seen that as, uh, um, not really, um, contributing to this um, capitalist society, um, and um, and and I I I I do I I I don't think I know there are those disabled people who feel that uh, uh, we have to fight for our issues. Uh, uh, I mean, I've I've had this argument even at Adapt. I don't know, you know, those of you who know Adapt, um, but. Uh, uh, to me, it's always been, it is the same struggle, Eddie, and I, uh, um, I feel very strongly about that. Anyone else uh, before we go to the, yeah? My name is Marianne Haas. I'm, I was born blind because of a contaminated polio vaccine. But oh. I also, I, I um, kind of, had similar experience about not being good enough. But what I want to know is, yes, it's wonderful to have um, sidewalk uh, curb cuts. And I totally agree. But what are we doing to work together with different disabilities? I know Excellent. that for, for me, it's 65% of blind people are unemployed in this country, and part of the reason is accessibility of data, data systems and websites. What are we doing to work together instead of against each other? Absolutely, that that is a excellent, excellent question. In in New York City, I remember when we first started 
getting curb cuts and blind people were walking off those curb cuts, not realizing that they were walking into the street. Um, and, and that was a really uh, big wake up call where we absolutely have to, uh, understand each other's needs and, uh, and join together. Um, we all, the, the one thing that unites us all, like you said, you do, you do understand, you, you too felt that uh, you were seen as not good enough, uh, the way you, the way you were, um, uh, the discrimination, the ableism that we encounter every day is the same for all of us, no matter what our disability is. Those of us, whether it is, uh, um, a physical disability or a sensory disability, whether it is our body that's not functioning the same as somebody, uh, other people's bodies, or whether it is our mind that's, that's uh, not functioning the same as other people's, uh, um, minds. Um, we all absolutely need and that to, to, to be together, to, to, uh, to, to get to, join to join forces of course and to and to really be there for each other i think that, that is so important i always found that um to, to understand somebody else's disability um and and by the way the 93 march we made a very very strong effort um to bring in everyone to bring in all uh, all people with all different types of disabilities um, and it was it was pretty good i mean we we um uh, but it's uh, i i i see that there's a, still so much so much uh, work to be done um, towards that First, get our community together. Get our community together. Join other oppressed groups. Today, the word we use is intersectionality. Um, there are different ways we all experience um, our um, the way we are oppressed. You know, we are we are oppressed in different ways, and we are oppressed in the same ways at the same time. I don't know that that's kind of a hard, um, that, that the oppression is similar, even though, um, that our experiences may differ. Um, and, and the way that we can fight together is to really understand, um, and, uh, and be there for each other. Jean. Nadina. <laughs> um, speaking of intersectionality, um, uh, I wonder if you if you can tell me <coughs> if people in this country who identify as progressive, um, uh, if you feel that that progressives honor and acknowledge the issues of people with disabilities. 
and if if you feel if if you can look at the arc of that over over time over the last i don't know 10 or 15 or 20 unfortunately, years unfortunately i have to say there are they don't get it <laughs> they just don't get it and um and we i find that i have to force my way in and make them understand um i hate that i hate that I, that we always have to be the ones to force our way in whether it's a a building or a a, a, a group a movement um we are the ones who have to do all the explaining um but uh, yes uh, um Often they do not get it, um, and of course there are some issues where um, we don't quite see eye to eye, and uh, and that's okay. If only we could talk about those issues, and they wouldn't just push us away. Um, so. That that's that is uh, that that is a problem because I we from the beginning I mean the five or four sit in I always think back to the five I was not here uh, how many were here uh, for the five or four sit in uh, you were okay uh, no I actually I was in the I was in the hospital. Um, having the amputation, which you will read about in the book. But then it felt like, uh, you know, we were the, 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 pro- all the different progressive movements, um, were there for, for the disabled people, right? I mean, it seemed, I really was excited about that, hearing about, uh, you know, the, the Black Panthers bringing food to the people, uh, sitting in the, the, the what I'm talking about for the, for people who, who don't know what I'm talking about, um, in, um, um, in 1977, um, we had sit-ins um, to um, to get regulations passed for uh, a law, um, the 1973 um, uh, Rehabilitation Act, which included uh, Section 504, which stated that if uh, uh, any entity that was receiving uh, uh, money from the government um, had to be um, accessible. Had to provide serv- services uh, in a in a manner that was accessible to people with all types of disabilities. Um, they passed the law in '73, not even um, uh, maybe not even realizing what they were doing, and, and then they realized. Then they saw how how, uh, uh, how 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 broad this was, and they said, "Oh wow! Now they're, they're all gonna want to go to college, and they're gonna want to <laughs> get into every building, and they're gonna want too much." So they they kind of dragged uh, their feet, uh, and they wouldn't pass the regulations. So that says in in uh, in. 
April of 1977. There were demonstrations all over the country to get those regulations passed. And while in New York City, um, it only lasted, I think, uh, 36 hours so that the city in, and, uh, in Washington, it was even less um, time. In San Francisco, um, people sat at the uh uh califano was the the head uh, at the time of uh health uh, um and uh human services and uh, for twenty eight days and uh and the um they had the support of the um uh, east bay very progressive community um, and I was, and we were also excited in New York. I remember getting the report. So they're still in there. They're still in there. And yes, the Black Panthers are bringing them food. The Butterfly Brigade, that was a gay group. Uh, they're, 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 they brought them a walkie talkie. We didn't have cell phones then. You know, there was no such thing. No social media. And, and, and I, and it seemed to me then that, uh, that, the progressive, um, uh, all the, you know, the progressives were with us. But uh, Jean is right. There ha- it hasn't been smooth sailing. Uh, at times, you know, um, they, they, I mean, they all hold events that are not accessible and they don't understand what we're talking about. Um, and we have to do our best. Um, yeah, I hate to when the burden seems to be all on us to, 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 to do the explanation, you know? Uh, but um, um, that's, that's what I do. I, uh, I just uh, force myself in and, and, and say, uh, uh, listen to me. You have to listen to me. Uh, and, and then uh, they, uh, they do. And once they listen, I mean, with Occupy Wall Street, we, we, uh, we formed the, uh, the, the disability caucus of Occupy Wall Street. We went to Zuccotti Park, Danny and I. Danny was already being pushed in his, uh, in his chair because he couldn't drive his power chair anymore. His hands uh, didn't work, uh, didn't function anymore. And, uh, and we went to Occupy Wall Street uh, to, to bring our perspective I think it is so important to bring the disability perspective to every issue, every uh, every uh, uh, group, um, um, and um, yeah, whatever it is. For example, uh, climate change. Look, look what you've been through here. Um, we got arrested together at the climate march. We got arrested together at the climate march. <laughs> And then he got arrested. That was the last time he got arrested. At the climate march, Gene came. You never know. You never know. You never know. You try. Really, really, you never know. Sometimes they just process you and let you go, which is what happened that uh, that evening when we got arrested together. But they don't always have an accessible paddy wagon either. (laughs) That's right. You know how they take do you you know how they take me to jail? They take me and uh, and other disabled people that get arrested with me. Uh, in New York City, how they take us to jail? Paratransit. (laughs) 
they call accessoride. Paratransit, that, that, you know, accessoride in New York City is horrible. They don't, they leave you stranded. I hope they don't leave me stranded tomorrow, by the way. I, I'm using the East Bay paratransit, um, to go to Berkeley. Uh, but they, they, that's how they take us, uh, that's how they take us to jail. Accessoride, that's what we call it. That's our paratransit. Uh, but you never know. Uh, I was arrested, uh, um, when I was arrested in front of ICE, they processed me on the spot, uh, and I had to fight. I wanted to be with everyone else. I hate to be uh, given uh, special treatment. Um, um, and, uh, yes, when we were arrested, they processed us on the spot. When I got arrested with ADAPT in Washington, they held us for many, many hours. Um, and, um, you know, they put you through the system, and they had to take your picture, and they had to fingerprint you. And uh, and sometimes it's hard to fingerprint people whose uh, hand, for example, is uh, uh, in a tight fist, and it's contracted, and they cannot open their hand to to fingerprint them. And sometimes people don't have arms or don't have, and and the police don't know what to do. And it's um, it's interesting. <laughs> so you never know. I, I have never spent more than, uh, um, than, a, than a night and a day. Um, but uh, yeah, you, they can, they can lock you up. Um, you have to, I, I do, uh, I do civil disobedience, uh, workshops where I, um, tell people what, how to act, what to do, you know, because sometimes, um, you, you may, uh, uh, if you don't, if you don't know what you're doing when you're doing civil disobedience, um, you could, uh, um, I don't know, um, Try and get away from the police or, um, run a policeman's foot with your wheelchair, <laughs> you know? <laughs> Something like that, 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 that's gonna get you a charge of, uh, of, uh, a resisting arrest and, uh, assault of a police officer. That's a very serious charge. So you have to be very careful. Um, uh, we want the charge to just to be, you know, the lightest uh, possible. Um, usually it's disorderly conduct. That's what we got last time when we got arrested. I think the time is over. Fortunately, tonight was not disorderly conduct at all. <laughs> this, was, this was just great. Um, and I, I, first of all, thank you so much for sharing this with us. Thank you. <clears throat> And I think it's it's really crucial um, that what we're learning as a society is to have so many different diverse viewpoints. We're saying, oh, we need more diverse viewpoints. But you get all those diverse viewpoints. One of the things you learn is that all those reasons that people were not accepted or whatever, that's what they have in common. It has all, all across all kinds exactly. of spectrums. This is what people don't like the most is just not being accepted as part of society. It's tough enough to deal with whatever issue it is. Um, and I think that that gives me hope for the future because we have so much diverse arguments about this and explaining what's going on that, you know, it'll take time. But I think more and more people will catch on that the thing to do under these circumstances is not pity. It's not, you know, making you feel bad for it or saying, oh, 
if only you would have had a good life, if only, if only, because that's said to people for really minor things, much less big things. Mm-hmm. Um, and we really don't need to treat each other that way. But that that's, I think, one of the great uh, hopes of what all this diverse uh, set of ideas that we're trying to get everybody to get their voice and, and speak out about wh- how they perceive the world, because there is this common thread running through everybody that feels oppressed. And that's, that's a an easy lesson learned. If they can't learn the detailed lessons, at least that big lesson can be learned. So thank you again very much. I really appreciate it. Thank you, George. Thank you, George. And so ends another event at the Commonwealth Club in its 117th year of enlightened discussion. Thank you very much for coming.